hello and welcome to episode 162 of the 1099 for the week of August 20th, 2018. I'm your host, Josiah Renauden, and with me today are two of my most requested games media guests. I swear, every time I ever put out a call on Twitter or on Reddit or anything, everyone's always like, you need these two people to get on your show and talk about reviews. I'm happy we can finally get it done. So first, we have a creative writer, journalist, and critic for Wired, Waypoint, Gizmondo, and a variety of other sites. Uh, one of my favorite writers and someone I'm jealous of every time she posts something. So I'm like, damn, I didn't think of that angle yet. Julie Muncie. Julie, thanks so much for doing this. How are you doing today? Hi. Yeah, I am doing real good. Happy to be here and happy to hear any compliments you want to give. <laughs> <laughs> I'll keep throwing them out. We can just keep piling them up, really. <laughs> Second, we have a writer scene on Polygon, Variety, Playboy, Motherboard, Rolling Stone, and a slew of other sites. Blake Hester, I was going to also throw you a bunch of compliments, Blake, but I didn't want to make the entire intro all compliments. So I'll just say thank you for coming on. How are you doing today? <laughs> thank you. I haven't written a review in a long time, but I think I remember how to do them. It's <laughs> it's kind of like riding a bike, I think, because yeah. I also haven't written a review in a long time, which maybe is the, the irony of this show with how much I talk <laughs> about game reviews. But I, <laughs> you still probably read a lot and think a lot about it. Yeah. Sometimes. <laughs> so what we're going to cover today, at least the plan, it could completely go off the rails, we'll find out. Uh, we want to talk a bit about how reviews have changed, what exactly a game review is today, because that has changed a lot, how you might have to adapt your style of writing based on the outlet when you're a freelancer, uh, hiring for passion, and maybe even a bit on plagiarism, because uh, that is something that has come up that is at least worth discussing. Uh, and I, I want to start here because, Blake, even though even if you haven't written reviews recently, we've all written reviews here. And I'd say since we all started in games media, what a review is has changed. Uh, that's, that's great in so many ways. You're seeing people tackle issues that you were never covered in games reviews. They're not just, hey, the graphics look good. The shooting feels fine. Eight out of 10 that you can now go into deeper aspects of a game, of a story, of of representation, all these different things. I guess the main question I would start with here is what should and shouldn't go in a review? And I'll, I'll throw this to you first, Julie. Are there certain takes that are better left for entire separate features where that's not the normal review discussion? Or at this point, mm. as long as your editor is fine with it, is really everything up for grabs when you're talking about a game in a critical context? I mean, personally, I get pretty liberal about my definition of what a review is. I feel like if it's an author's opinion about their own experience of the game and it um, you know, includes some sort of evaluative element, even if the evaluation is even mostly implied, then you know, it still strikes me as a review. I'm happy to call it that. But I think, you know... One thing that does immediately come to mind is that like a lot of people read reviews before they purchase a game. I don't think that's the whole yeah. audience. I think people also read reviews to, you know, think about something they have played or are playing or whatever it is. But like because you're dealing with a lot of a pre purchasing or playing audience then like things that dive heavily into say dissecting a game's ending or that really go into things that wouldn't necessarily make sense to you if you hadn't touched the game at all those things are often i think that best left for a feature but but, but i get i get pretty liberal i think if you want to put it in your review and you can make it work you should do it yeah and i i do think i mostly agree there i remember and i've referenced this maybe too many times but uh jason concepcion who was at grantland is now at the ringer 
uh, wrote this piece on Metal Gear Solid Five that really was not a it wasn't a traditional review, but it is almost more effective because it just talked about this single scenario that he was running through and just this very detailed moments of how he felt as he was going through this mission. And it wasn't, you know, the shooting feels good or the graphics look good. It's describing what he was feeling and and uh, how intense that moment got. And it was it was again, it wasn't a review, but it was this sort of slice of the game that made me like, oh, this sold me on the game more than any review I've really ever read. And I I feel like there's probably this. Well, there is this contingent of the audience that is so used to these straightforward evaluations of quality in terms of graphics, gameplay and story and content depth that they do push back on reviews that try to tackle other things and weigh other aspects of a game's narrative or message or things that could be problematic. And they're like, this, that's not what a review is. So Blake, do you have an ideal when you're reading reviews, do you have a certain, it needs to be in this format or do you prefer reviews that just go in crazy directions and try things? Um, I mean, I'm kind of all across the board in terms of like things I don't think should be in reviews. The only thing that comes to mind is that like fucking price versus length <laughs> argument. I think this is a very dumb argument. I um, but yeah, I think like you know there are the more standard reviews. I'd say the sites like maybe IGN or Gamespot publish, which like they serve a purpose. You know, they're maybe not the deepest criticism or critiques in the world, but they serve an audience and they serve a purpose. And I like those interview or those reviews as much as any other deep crit. Um, but I also think like kind of what Julie said. There is a lot of stuff. If you can make it work in a review, it's good. But like, I think some of the best critical analysis of games usually comes outside of reviews. The one that popped mm. to mind was a Dia Lucina uh, article for Waypoint about God of War's representation of mothers. And it's like, that could have maybe worked as a few graphs in a review, but instead it's this entire feature and it's a breakdown of this one specific part of the game. So I think I'm answering your question. I don't know. Uh, no, you absolutely are. And that's yeah. actually the perfect example of yeah. what I was thinking. I like both camps. And I think there are ways to put that stuff in reviews. But I also think if it works better as a feature, like you shouldn't hold yourself back by like, okay, I need to talk about this aspect, this aspect, this aspect. I want to fit this in. Like, no, just break it out. Like criticism and reviews have gotten to the point where it's not just the scaled review anymore. You get all these different op-eds that come out so yeah you don't want the situation where major aspects of a game that might bother you or that might be great like you mentioned with the god of war thing or just these kind of offshoots on a review like oh here's a paragraph box in this review on whatever site that just says like oh this 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 thing is really shitty but it's really not going to affect the final score we just wanted to point it out at that point you want to pull that out and be like all right let's write a full feature on something like that i mean we've seen so many reviews where major flaws about a game's message uh or just certain representation issues i will always go back to the nick capazzoli review of dead rising 3 where he had major issues with how women were upset in that game and gave it a three i think around there which he might still be taking shit for today (laughs) on message boards and on anything on the internet at at large the internet Uh, never forgets no they really don't (laughs) Not that review. I think the first thing, if you look him up, is like some sort of hit piece about <laughs> that review. And it's people care too much about scores. But it's there's this certain aspect, I feel like, where a lot of reviews will point issues like that out. But then it's like, oh, but it's still a nine out of ten. Like mm-hmm. th- this is a thing that's an issue with me, but it's still a nine out of ten. So, uh, Julie, how how do we weigh 
the many different layers of a game, if we're reviewing something, is it just, hey, it really depends on what the reviewer values, or is it important that we don't just bring up something that could be a big issue, but because it's not on the traditional review scale of fun factor, graphics, uh, gameplay, and all that bullshit, if that issue is out there, it shouldn't really affect the score that much. I think that it depends on the issue and the reviewer, obviously. I think, you know, it is important I, that reviews are personal and reflect and reflect a, a reviewer's values and perspective and what their, you know, lived experience of playing this game was. But, um, you know, I generally feel that we don't do enough to take narrative elements and and elements of a game's construction that might be really off-putting to a significant part of the population be it women or people of color or or whatever i think we don't do a good enough job in taking that seriously as a part of a holistic analysis um and i think you know my answer to how to handle that in a review is i think that reviews really need to be not just lists of things that happened or different aspects of a game, because that's, I think, a lot of the way reviews are. They're just so, sort of going down a certain list of, of things about the game and discussing each in isolation before gathering for a conclusion. I really think that reviews, you know, like any other type of, of critical essay, need a coherent thesis that ties your perspective together. And I think that, you know, having a coherent position that your review takes about the game and what it means can make it easier to know, you know, when to, to bring in those things that maybe are periphery to you but might be important to somebody else or whatever it is like that and and be able to situate it in a way that both doesn't minimize it and also maybe helps explain your perspective on the game. Yeah, no, I fully agree. And there's always this struggle in my head, at least there was when I was reviewing games at GameSpot of, I think it's important that you want to pick out the things that really spoke to you in that game because that's often when you're going to get the most powerful critical writing when it's like, this is this is why this game was important to me. This is why this game, this aspect, that the sound, be it the soundtrack, the story, the gameplay connected with me based on my experiences. But then there's also the other side of it where it's there's certain aspects that might be really important to other people that I can't cover because I don't have those experiences. So do you, I mean, that's when you just hope for someone is seeking out multiple reviews by different uh writers of a game but it, it's it, those different aspects i remember when i first started i was so i had the 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 regular review format so ingrained into my brain it was almost like the high school five paragraph essay where i'm like all right here's my first paragraph that just says here's my thesis on this here's my three supporting paragraphs and then boom generic ass final paragraph that does this <laughs> and make sure on the way you're you're covering the sound, even if the soundtrack did not stand out to you at all. You're covering the graphics, even if it looks like every other military shooter out there. Mm. Uh, and the more I was working with Kevin Van Ord, the more he was just saying, if that stuff doesn't matter to you, or if it didn't stand out, don't don't write about it. Like if, if, why do you have a paragraph in here about the soundtrack basically saying it is there, it exists, and if you have ears, you can hear it? Like That's <laughs> not a real reason to add that into this review, which you don't want to be bloated. You want it to be potent throughout. So that's just something that as, as it's carried with me, but I also think there's this aspect of there's going to be things about this game that are important to other people that I can't write about, and it, it's hard to do that. It, it's it's a hard it's a hard thing to kind of balance in my brain uh, with everything like that. Uh, Blake, have you ever gotten pushback from 
a site about, I know you, again, you haven't written reviews in a while, but let's say when you did, have you ever gotten pushback about how you weigh different aspects of a game? Have you ever gotten a, I don't think you talked enough about this, or I think you, this, this score is too low or this score is too high. Have you ever gotten a review back where it needed significant edits? That's maybe you initially didn't agree with. Nothing immediately comes to mind. I think funnily, uh, when I did a few reviews for GameSpot 2, it was under Peter Brown. I always scored things higher than my text seemed to be. Mm. Like I would score something and I always reviewed very bad games. I, I, so I'd be like, yeah, this is a five. This thing sucks. And he'd be like, no, your text is a three. But I wouldn't really call that pushback, you know. Um, but yeah, nothing immediately comes to mind in terms of stuff like that. Sorry. Uh, Julie, have you ever had to change uh, a score or maybe change any like the text significantly when you wrote for i don't have you ever have you gotten a chance to write for ign or GameSpot or anything like that uh i haven't you know most of my strict reviews have been uh for were for kill screen rest in peace um <laughs> and they were always pretty free with letting the writers shape their opinion how they wanted i do r- remember one instance at um an outlet that I'm not gonna name uh, where um, and this piece didn't end up getting published anyway. But um, I was reviewing Mafia Mafia Three for them, or was supposed to. And um, what happened is through a series of edits that went through like various levels of the publication. I think there was difficulty in deciding how much the they wanted the review to be like strictly evaluative and more straightforward and mechanical or to focus more heavily on the on the thematic elements and push toward being more a critical feature and because my first draft was was what I always what I always try to do when I'm doing reviews especially for an outlet I don't know all that well is try to do something in the middle something that has a thesis that lets me talk a bit about both um and this was one where i i i turned in that and then and then they wanted a draft that was more thematic and featurey and i did that and then they they wanted a draft that went back to more mechanical and i did that and then we couldn't figure out how to make it all work so the piece got killed i've I've been there (laughs) yeah it's the going back and forth where i would like to think i always appreciate editor feedback but there's a certain Mm -hmm. There are just certain times where I'm not saying you need to put your foot down, but you realize like, oh, we're just not going to ever get on the same page with how this game should be covered. And maybe what I see is important with it. Uh, Blake, you talk to a lot of developers when you're doing features on uh, whether it be Polygon or um, any of the different variety, anything like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I remember talking to this is a little bit of an offshoot of reviews, but I remember talking to uh, Danny O'Dwyer a while back about the best way to talk to developers and how you can get maybe specific nuggets you wouldn't get otherwise. Uh, we just talked before about certain aspects of a game that are important to us. When you're talking to a developers, are you trying to find the certain aspects of, of their game that are important to them that might not be the normal publisher speak uh, preview cycle stuff about there's 17 new maps or guess what? We've a yeah. battle royale mode and actually kind of get to the the core of what makes their game important to them. Kind of ish. Um, I don't typically write about, I'd say, the games themselves, more the development behind them. Um, so I kind of try to find, you know, 
where the important anecdotes or milestones are in the development process as opposed to being like you know where did this idea for this mechanic or story come from but a little bit you know every interview i think is especially in games like you got to approach them like just a human being every developer is scared to talk to the press i think um so i wouldn't say i'm hunting for specific things like that as opposed to specific moments in the story that i can pull out from people maybe it's an obvious question but why do you think developers are scared to talk to the press um because for whatever reason the white house has more leaks than the game industry like everything is just (laughs) so yeah it's fucking ridiculous everything is so buttoned up you know they're 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 very real stakes at play and there's a lot of money being pushed into these things so i mean i don't have a great answer for it but i think people are just at this point especially in triple a i mean once you get into indie and you know more retro stories a lot of that stuff breaks down but especially in the triple a industry people are just so trained media trained and buttoned up not to say the right or the wrong thing that yeah. i don't know if it is necessarily that they're afraid they just th- no i will say they are afraid they're afraid <laughs> of saying the wrong thing because of how much money is in this industry now and in these individual products that one i mean look at what happened with sean murray and hello games like one slip of the tongue and like your career is forever kind of smudged by that yeah i think the scale and the size of games does really lead into that where like you said it's one slip up it's one i shouldn't have said that or now i've set expectations in a certain way and that's going to stick with you. And there's so many people involved in, you know, a 50 to a hundred million dollar game that if you are the person who tanks that or negatively impacts it, it's, it's a lot to take. Uh, Julian, what do you look for when you are reading or listening to any sort of interviews with developers? Because like reviews, I feel like conversations with developers have changed a lot since Mm -hmm. preview coverage was always again like oh what what consoles what's the date how much is it going to cost is there multiplayer and that was not the extent of it i don't want to like underplay there were people who were doing interesting developer interviews before but we're getting behind the scenes more with different documentary series or with podcasts for example so (laughs) what do you look for when you're trying to see new info about a game directly from a developer or maybe just new info about a studio yeah well i mean being in the industry for a while you you can tell what is and isn't pr trained speak and what thing you know that that honestly came from something they just thought of versus something they've said three times that day to three different reporters so the first thing you know is i want to try to filter out the pr speak from the things that might be more candid um another thing is that you know i come mostly from a fine arts and creative writing background um and and so i'm really interested in finding out what's personal to the creators about what they're making and what inspired them i'm interested a lot in hearing about you know what other pieces of media even outside of games influenced their work like watching i like you mentioned you mentioned o'dwyer and he Mm. interviewed the people behind doom and they talked a lot about like the last action hero and like these cheesy action movies that influence doom and that kind of thing i find fascinating because not not only is it just neat to know but also it talks to how i think about media because i think about media i connect you know when i'm playing to everything else books tv shows all of that in my head and so 
hearing that sort of stuff from a developer helps me as you know a critic and a reviewer, which is mostly the sort of stuff I write, helps me put works into context. And, and that's really important for me. I love when developers talk about different books or movies or shows or something else other than games that inspired their work. Um, I, not to self-plug the team I'm working for, but I, I've been watching a lot of Here They Lie streams because Here They Lie was uh, our studio's first game and it's now mm -hmm. on PlayStation Plus so a lot more people are playing it. And there's a lot of people in chat are like, oh, what's the, this is a lot like Outlast or this is a lot like this other horror game. And then every once in a while there'll be a streamer who's like, man, this reminds me of uh jacob's ladder this reminds me of this, this aspect of like twin peaks or something like that i'm like yes that's that is actually what the developers were going for and that's <laughs> the cool i totally agree with you that's the stuff that fascinates me is where do you get your inspiration beyond games in that way uh blake do you, i'm assuming you run into when you are talking to developers or interviewing anyone for a feature you run into the pr speak do you have certain tactics to try to get around that and get to the core of something does it sometimes just take time where if you're talking to a developer, you understand maybe the first 20 minutes of it's going to be PR speak, but after people get comfortable, you might be able to actually get to that nugget or that aspect that you actually want to talk about. I, I do run into that a lot. Um, I think the important, the best way to break that stuff down is like, I don't often write like very rigid questions like, okay, I need to hit this. I need to hit this. I just maybe will jot down ideas. And so that, inherently makes it more of a conversation with people so it's less of hey tell me why this game had six guns instead of seven and i get some canned <laughs> answer you know my under preparation sometimes helps me because i'm very lazy so it's just like <laughs> i don't have any questions i just have to talk to this person for an hour and so i think that has maybe unintentionally helped break a lot of that down um, and it is kind of identifying like what you all said, things people are interested in. And maybe it's not a book or, you know, this or that. Maybe it's like they keep bringing up this one point in development. What is that? You know, they keep bringing up this person they worked with. Who is that? And so starting that dialogue gets a lot more interesting answers because you break down what they expect to talk about. That's kind of a weird way to put it, breaking them down. But it like breaks through what they are probably, you know, had pre-scripted in their own brains of what they needed to tell someone. That interviewing strategy terrifies me, but I think you're right <laughs> that it might actually be the best way to handle things where you have the moment of, if you have this locked in list of questions in your brain, you're probably going to follow that and miss this different, better avenue you could have taken mm -hmm. where you're, you, they answer a question and they're like, oh my God, that's actually the thing I want to talk about. They just mentioned, but your brain is like, no, I got to get to this next question about the, the six guns over seven guns thing. And you miss this entire route. That's way more important. But I always get terrified of what if my brain just locks up because I don't have questions in front of me? What if suddenly I'm like, uh oh, I have nothing yeah. else to ask you. I'd probably have a thousand things to ask you, but none of them are actually coming up right now. Yeah, that I, I've run into that. But yeah, I just I think if you don't force yourself into like a checklist of things you have to ask them, your brain is going to start to try to like make things up to talk to them about. So it's like seems to be the best way to get beyond all that canned answer bullshit that you have yeah. to deal with sometimes. It, it seems to be working for you. Julie, to get back to reviews mm -hmm. really quickly, we all know that every time you or anyone is reviewing a game, there's always this all your previous experiences are going to impact how you feel about a certain franchise. Let's say someone's like, here, Julie, you get to write the Black Ops 4 review. 
this is your big Call of Duty review on whatever site. And it's no matter what, it's hard. You want to go into certain aspects with a blank slate, or at least, if not a blank slate, the ability to have your mind changed about a franchise and not be so impacted by, oh, God, I hate Call of Duty games, but I guess I'll play this. So it's, of course, impossible to come in neutral and also motherfuckers there are there's no such thing as these perfect objective reviews that's not a thing right it's, it's a review but have you had to give certain genres or franchises more of a chance than you normally would when you're going into a review have you been given a review of a, a a second or third game where you didn't like the first one had to be like all right i need to go kind of clean slate so i can give this thing a chance i mean yeah absolutely like it happens i'm trying to think of a good specific example um Far Cry 5 is one where mm. I like some Far Cry games, but I wasn't. None of what it sounded like the game was doing seemed like it was interesting to me. In fact, it seemed kind of offensive and frustrating. And, you know, it may not be the best example because I did end up not liking the game and not giving it a good review. But um, I, th- I think in those situations, what I try to do is be honest with myself about what I think and what I expect. Because when, you know, I know that, okay, I'm predisposed to not enjoy this. I'm predisposed to, you know, not want to put 80 hours into a JRPG or whatever it is. Then um, at that point, I can have that opinion s- sort of in front of me as I play and dialogue with it and and try to, you know, push back at myself or see where that starts to creep in. But yeah, for, 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 for me, I think it's just really being honest with myself and my readers about what I think. Have you ever had the chance to review a game in a genre that you have no experience with at all? Because I remember at GameSpot, Kevin Van Ord threw me a, I think it was like a tower defense, RT, it, it, was a, it was a type of tower defense RTS type of thing that, I was actively bad at and I had to really it was a challenge to work into it and understand the mechanics and put my brain in a space I've never really put it before. And it was a terrifying thing. Yeah. I was like, this is just going to be stuff that I don't know about this genre. And I'll be like, this is so novel. And everyone's saying, what are you talking about? This was done 10 years ago <laughs> by this other game. Have you ever had to do that uh, to and, and do you think there's actually a positive to trying something like that to expand maybe your critical purview? Yeah, um, actually, my first review that I think I ever got professionally published, like a straight-up review, was for the AV Club. And they gave me the code for this, like, one of the small offshoot double-fine games that they made for a while with, like, a part of their team while they were working on other things. I don't remember what it was called, but what it was was a Legend of Zelda pastiche. But instead of, like, RPG mechanics, it was all done with coding. And oh, I, yeah, I remember this. Yeah, I don't know how to code. I don't know anything <laughs> about coding. I um, I took one coding class in college and didn't go half the time. So um, playing that was extremely challenging because I didn't. I I was having to teach myself and let the game teach me the fundamental logic of how to do any of this, and that was really really difficult it made me feel like you know i had no idea what i was doing um but i think that exp i hope that experience you know let me 
actually learn the game more deeply and to see more of it than someone who's really good at that stuff, you know, might, because they are able to drift right past the way the game explains itself or, like, all the complexities of the mechanics because they just get it and they find the straightforward, easiest thing to do when they do that. Whereas if you've got no idea, then you have to really study and learn and get into the nooks and crannies of of, of whatever sort of system a game has. And, and you also you know have the benefit of not having the preconceptions in your mind that might build up around a certain genre or type of game or type of mechanic in this case, um, because you just don't have any experience with it. Like... I know that there's a whole massive line of like RTS games about like the Civil War, but that's all I know. So if you if, if you plopped me down in front of one of those and were like, "What do you think of this?" I would probably have an opinion that doesn't sound all that much like people who know those games because I just have no frame of reference for what anyone else thinks about it. I still think there's value in someone who has never played a Madden game and doesn't understand football to review a Madden game for that <laughs> right. very reason. It could be a dumpster fire, uh, but uh-huh. it could also, like you mentioned, push aside. There's all these, when you, when a Madden reviewer reviews Madden, all the Madden bullshitty nature of it, they already are used to it. So they might look past that. They might look past how the game is teaching you passing and defenses and, and how to cut angles and get through your line that, those things, if they're not great, then it's hard for the person who's so experienced in that to actually look at it and be like, oh, this part doesn't explain itself very well because if this massive football fan, you don't need the game to explain itself. So I still kind of deep down want give me a, you know, a, someone who has never played a sports game or doesn't understand the sport reviewing that sports game. And I want to hear that opinion. That would be interesting. Yeah. Blake, I was talking, we were joking earlier about jumping into interviews without any sort of like written questions. And I have notes for this podcast, but the one thing I actually wrote, I'm going to read this word for word is, uh, are we more worried about hiring someone who fucking loves video games over someone who fucking <laughs> loves writing about video games? And I'm uh, guessing when I wrote this, it was very much there's this discussion recently about why it's it's most important to hire someone who's passionate about games and love will do anything for video games and defines themselves as a gamer over someone who is a writer first and also likes games. Uh, it's hard to sit here and be like, let's fix the problem with how we hire in the industry or anything like that. But mm-hmm. passion can be important and it is important if you want to get into something like this. But do we overvalue passion for games when we are looking for people to write either critical pieces or features or do big uh, interview expose type of things? You know, I I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no one has ever asked me my like, to see my gamer card or whatever before I've done a piece, you know, I'll mm. go on the record to say I wrote a 20,000 word article about crash bandicoot. I have not played crash bandicoot <laughs> in my entire <laughs> life. Never even touched it. Nice. <laughs> Actually, the only time I've ever played it was in uncharted four. And I was annoyed that I had to play it. <laughs> uh, no nostalgia so like, for you. Though. So I, I think people don't really hire based on pure passion about video games. Like I think, People probably look for writing skill or clean copy or stuff like that. I think this debate that I saw on Twitter was kind of just, it it came from Brian Altano. I think people just picking up on one line and a whole thing and kind of blowing it out of proportion. Mm -hmm. Um, 
which is my thoughts whenever I log on to Twitter and see anything. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I really don't kind of buy that. I mean, I'm sure if you're like a guides writer or a wiki writer, it probably would help to be very passionate about playing games all the time uh, because that would be your job. But like for writing news or writing features or probably even writing reviews or criticism, like I don't think any, at least in the freelance space, no one's like, I said, trying to see some gamer card to prove, you know, you've been in the trenches. It's like, hey, can you get me your copy on time? Is it going to be clean? Do you know how to use a comma? Which sometimes I don't, but that's neither here nor there. Um, but yeah, I don't really buy into the whole, like, we're only, and I, I have heard stories of like these weird, insane tests people have to take when applying for, or when like interviewing for a job. And that's always struck me as very weird. It's like, I'm a writer. Like, I'm if I was... You know, that's what I want you to hire me for, not to see if I've played every game from X developer or Y developer. So, yeah, I don't really buy into a lot of that, that that's the case in the industry or in the press. Yeah. Julie, do you think we look too much at passion when we're looking for either full-time or freelance writers about games? You know, I mean, I agree with Blake. You know, in my experience, it really hasn't been an active question. Um, I think, you know, I have heard stories of yeah i mean exactly what blake said about people being asked weird things about hearing about you know wanting that sort of thing i think what what i think this issue gets at is we tend to want to hire people who are interested in the same things we are and who you know in the tech industry they call it culture fit right that you know you want to find someone who has similar interests and a similar enough background that you feel like, you know, you would hang out or whatever it is. Um, I think that when we do that in games, we do run the risk of um, hiring people that are too much like us and um, that have too many overlapping interests. I mean, to be more explicit, you know, Games have made a lot of strides, but they still have a problem of, of, you know, having more straight white men than anything else. And I think that's because the people who are most encouraged to seek these jobs and the people who, you know, are most excited to immediately apply and also the people who will probably get along best immediately with other straight white guys doing the hiring are straight white gamer guys and Mm -hmm. so i think what the question about passion and hiring for passion gestures to is a need to get out of our own sort of gaming culture bubble when looking for people to bring new perspectives on board, new hires, new writing, that sort of thing. Julie, a lot of the, the passion conversation came up, because, of course, because of the the plagiarism issue yes. that happened, which we don't have to dig too much into, uh, but more of a question, reviewers, uh, this is something that came up with uh, the iGen editor saying that he, he was doing a whole bunch of research before writing reviews, which meant he was reading other reviews before writing his own reviews, which is a pretty big no-no. So I pretty strongly believe that reviewers should avoid reading other reviews during the review process. But to take that a step further, should they also avoid reading any sort of preview coverage or any of the marketing messaging 
before writing a review because you mentioned Far Cry 5 before and how you reviewed that game and the the messaging surrounding it early on was weird and it was like this might actually be an interesting political game and then they really pulled back on that and did something entirely different so we talked before about bringing in expectations into a review and boy did people have certain expectations when they were playing Far Cry 5 so do you think it could actually be helpful if you would have never read any coverage or seen anything about Far Cry 5 by the time you actually reviewed it? I mean, yeah, absolutely. I think that is definitely, you know, it gives you an advantage in terms of having more space to craft an opinion without outside context. And I think when you're first developing an opinion of something, of something often not having too much complicating information is good. Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, when you do a review, I think some audience expectations and marketing and things and preview coverage are a part of that do matter and is a context that you, I think, can effectively and sometimes need to discuss. But like, I think often it would probably be ideal if that knowledge and research came after you played the game and formed an initial opinion. That doesn't happen very often, just because it's all the marketing and conversation is everywhere, especially if you're in the industry. So I don't even know if I have very much experience of it happening, except for with like obscure indie games that I found or that somebody showed me that I had just never heard of before. But um, yeah, yeah. Blake, when you did write reviews, did you try to go in as clean as possible or did you do any, I mean, research is such a weird term. Did you try to look up some different aspects of it before actually playing or writing about the game? Uh, usually all the reviews I did were just like small indie games that were mm -hmm. thrown to me. Uh, so most times, no, I'd never heard of what they are. And in a lot of ways, you can find like really cool games that way. I played Pillars of the Earth. Yeah, because Pillars of Eternity is a yeah, that, that sounds like a game name. Yeah, um, and it was based on, like, the Ken Follett novel, and it was really cool and really interesting. And a lot of times you also get, like, really shitty games that way. But I think, like, to your bigger question, like, if you cover the industry, it's almost inevitable you're going to have to see all that marketing and preview stuff. So it's like, yeah, that probably would definitely be ideal to be able to go in blind to all your reviews and not have these expectations but i think if you work in the industry and you cover games it's just like kind of an unobtainable goal yeah i some of my favorite reviews i've personally written are the ones where someone would throw me like you mentioned this code for an obscure indie game where mm -hmm. there weren't any not that i'm searching but there weren't any other reviews online of it there was very little coverage and i just had no idea what i was getting into because you really just kind of you dive in and you make You'd like to think you make all your own opinions, but like you mentioned before, sure. when you're in the industry, it's impossible to avoid the coverage for major games. So you, you're already a little tainted going in, but having the full blown, I have no idea what the fuck this is. Let's find out and write about it is such a fun way to do things. Uh, last thing about reviews. Um, I think it's easy to fall into the trap of, of evaluating games in terms of what did this set out to do and did it accomplish said goal, which leaves out the did this goal have value aspect of that? Did the game need to go for this? Is this even a good thing to go for? I think just simply asking, did this game do what it's out to do leads to a lot of reviews that read the same. 
But I say all that to ask this, and I'll start with you, Julie. Is it okay that plenty of reviews read similarly? Uh, if everyone likes the new Zelda and they point out similar high points, does that just mean that it's a good video games and the reviews are quote unquote accurate? Or is there too much critical consensus right now? Is there too are, are people looking at games too similarly and not asking more core questions like, was this thing you went for even valuable uh, versus just did you accomplish the thing you set out to do? The Legend of Zelda is actually a really interesting example here because, um, you know, when all the reviews came out, we all, and I, and I also was lucky enough, I'm really proud of that review, to have had a chance to write about for Breath of the Wild when it released. Um, but we all loved it. But since then, you know, I've talked to people who have a much wider variety of opinions about Breath of the Wild, who think maybe that it's derivative of other open world games, or too boring, or that maybe trying to make open world nature exploration games is a bad idea, or all of those things. So when I feel like it's a little bit of a question wrongly asked, or not asked in the way that I would mm. frame it, because... I think a lot of the critical consensus comes from having the same small group of people who are reviewing everything. Like there are a lot of of critics who might not get, you know, those big banner review um, opportunities who would have really interesting and surprising and strange and controversial things to say, but they don't get the chance necessarily because, and, and it, it makes sense on some level because when you're reviewing Breath of the Wild, you want to give that to, you know, your very, your very experienced, respected, reliable writer, you know, your you're not just your reviewer, but your review's editor or whoever it is, because it's such a big thing. But I think that because of that, we often missed out on some interesting perspectives, especially right around release. So I think, you know, the interpretive lens absolutely absolutely does matter. And I think we do often take certain things about games to be very sacred in a way that that is often unhelpful. But my answer, as it is with a lot of things, is that the reason that's a problem is often because it's the same group of people who all who are are in a community of professionals and players and people who spend too much time on Twitter that um, share opinions because they're a part of a group that lead to an overabundance of critical consensus. Yeah, that's a super smart way to put it in an aspect I hadn't thought as much about. Uh, Blake, any thoughts on critical consensus? Yeah, I, I, I think just for me personally, like, the stuff I enjoy reading is, um, and also I agree with everything Julie said 100%. I think the stuff that doesn't drop an embargo that trickles out, you know, weeks to months later where people dissect certain parts of games is where you're going to find the more interesting critical analysis of games. But I also think the standard review still serves its purpose, you know, for the strict consumer, I guess, if you will. But I don't know if I have any ideas on solutions or how to really bridge the two. I just am more willing to wait a few weeks to read about a game than I am to, you know, check right at embargo for a Spider-Man review or something. I have a lot of fun, usually the weeks and months after, like you mentioned, finding those other opinions where it's like, oh, this is an entirely different way to look at this game that 
like you said, normally comes out pretty long after the embargo once people spend more time with it. Uh, so at, yeah. at the core of this podcast, it's still an advice show. So I feel like I should at least ask this question because both of you are really great at what you do. Uh, I'll start with you, Blake. What, what's one major piece of advice you'd give new writers that you wish you knew when you started, whether that be how to write reviews, how to talk about developers, just something you've learned since you started that you're like, man, if I only knew this at the start, I'd be the fucking best writer in the world. <laughs> Are you saying I'm not the best writer? In the world? <laughs> Probably like top three. <laughs> top three, me, Stephen King, and Shakespeare. Uh, <laughs> I've never read a Shakespeare or Stephen King book. I don't know why that went. Anyway, I have two answers. One's quick. Uh, probably keep a part-time job mm. just for steady income. I work two days a week at a coffee shop and I would not leave as long as I'm a freelancer. I get a check every two weeks and that's very nice. Um, but my real answer, uh, something I think I struggled with kind of early on that I've worked on is not getting married to ideas. Um, yeah. Not getting too attached to pitches because 60%, if not more, of my pitches are always, you know, are turned down. So if I'm obsessed with one idea and it doesn't work, I'm just going to dwell on it. Um, and I see that with a lot of writers who seem to put like only one or two eggs in a basket. And if those eggs don't work out, they, you know, it may be some time before they have a backup. So just not getting too attached to ideas, which is weird because we write and it's like an artistic medium, you know. But I think once you get it too attached to an idea and it falls apart on you and you don't have a backup, you're kind of screwed for a little while. And I wish I would have known that very early on when I first started pitching things. Yeah, totally agree. Yeah. Uh, Julie, any advice you want to give? I think there's like a lot. There's a lot. Um, <laughs> I guess to part it down, one thing is just to know your worth. Um, and I mean both in the sense that you should investigate what other people are getting paid for their work and make friends who freelance and 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 work on building that network so you have a base of knowledge about what's normal in the industry and what's not but also just try not to base your sense of self-worth on how your pieces are received or whether your pitches are accepted or things like that i think that if you're a person who really cares about writing and cares deeply about what they're writing or making a video of or however you kids are doing these things these days um i feel like <laughs> if you're really invested in that craft and in 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 feeling and thinking deeply about what you care about you probably have something really valuable to say and that's true and that remains true whether or not that thing is immediately marketable. And I think, you know, holding on to that and that confidence of, you know, what I say does matter. If I think this, somebody else will probably also think it at some point and I can connect with that person. Um, I think that that does a lot for your ability to survive in the industry when it gets hard and brutal and there's not enough work and people are being jerks on Twitter and you disagree with all of them or all the, all the, the stresses that come. I think that, you know, they're a lot easier to deal with if you can hold on to that. Yeah, totally agree. And for people who maybe don't know either of you or your work uh, too well and have now heard all of this advice and like these are the smartest people in the world. Uh, Julie, uh, what piece of content <laughs> are you proudest of that you'd want to point people to that maybe represents your style of writing or the way you look at games the best? 
One of my prize pieces is not a games piece, so I'm going to avoid Ooh. that one and, and go to, to a second piece is or a couple pieces is I got to, a chance to write reviews for Wired for both Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild and Super Mario Odyssey, and I'm really proud of the way I handled those games, and I feel like I was able to say things about them that other people didn't necessarily say, and I feel really proud and proud and excited about that so i would say go check those out perfect and for you blake um <clears throat> i think the thing i'm most proud of was a piece of put out last year i spent six weeks traveling america and interviewing indie developers about like how geographical location affects their work and stuff like that um and it was the closest i'll probably ever get to writing my anthony bourdain style book <laughs> uh so- so probably that. I think that's the thing. Like when I look back on what I wrote, that's always my favorite one to kind of think about. I've seen that piece of Blake's and I knew him when he was working on it. And it's it's really neat. Yeah, you should check it out. Thank you. Uh, and looking ahead now, uh, start with you, Blake. What are you working on right now that people can look forward to that you can actually talk about? I don't know if you're Ooh. doing a whole bunch of top secret shit you can't say uh, on a podcast, but is there anything you want to promote? I'll tell you what, because it'll probably come out soon. I went camping with Double Fine. Uh, in the middle of the Redwood Forest uh, a week or two ago with uh, a bunch of the Psychonauts 2 backers. So I'm going to be writing about that whole experience and drinking wine with Tim Schafer's wife, probably. And so, yeah, I think that's the thing I'm most excited to jump into, and that should be out relatively soon. That sounds incredible. Um, That's really cool. I'm invested in this already. Uh, And what's your Twitter handle? Metallica is rad. (laughs) Okay, your your Twitter handle is one of those that I've never actually tried to say out loud and I just have always seen it as this this grouping of letters where I'm like, oh, that's that's Blake's Twitter that yeah. I've never said out loud. And now I feel like an idiot. Uh, Julie, yeah. what are you working on that you could talk about? And what's your Twitter handle? I don't want to divulge too much just because it's an in-production piece, but I'm working on something that will hopefully be me having a chance to write for an outlet that I used to write for a lot that I've missed working for a lot. And so that is really exciting for me. And hopefully that will be out sooner rather than later. And you are, is it Julie Muncy 23 on Twitter? That is right. Because somebody took Julie Muncy. I don't know who they are. (laughs) <laughs> and all the 22 other options yeah <laughs> all the different variations <laughs> thanks so much the two of you for doing this i, yeah, I don't absolutely. write sure, yeah. you know, i don't do games media anymore i'm a you know quote-unquote developer at this point but when i do miss it it's when i see pieces that people like both of you do where the you. people are talking about games in a way that i find much more interesting than the, the stock way we've talked about games for so long i don't remiss i don't miss writing about news for a goddamn second Uh, or doing preview coverage but i do miss these deep dives into studios or these deep dives into why games matter to certain people and what really stands out so i appreciate what both of you do and i'm I'm happy we could finally actually get together and do this yeah yeah absolutely thank you for having me of course and thanks everyone for listening hopefully tune back in for the next episode of the 1099